Sharice has derp, derp, received derp, derp, derp. multiple compliments on her podcasting voice. Did you know that? No. I was also wondering if you read my notes. Oh, I never read your notes, though. That comes up in my topic today, weirdly. Your podcasting voice? We'll get Weird. to it. Weird. We'll get to it. Weird. Not specifically the podcasting voice, something else, but it's adjacent. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash makein. Get into it. What, is there a ghost in the corner? No, 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 there isn't. <laughs> Eugene just like abruptly looked at the other side of the room. Tell me if you see something I don't, man. Um, yeah, my plan D is voiceover actress. I'm here to produce your audio commercials, guys. Hit, I hit don't up. think I have a great voice. Although someone has told me my voice is soothing. That's weird. Let's move on. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about this. Was it your wife? No, it wasn't. Let's okay. move on. All right. You go first. You go first. Oh, I didn't know it was such a contentious issue. Okay. My subject this week is the Dunning-Kruger effect and what that means about what we would like to believe about people. So actually, this whole thing started a couple weeks ago. David Kay in the Macon Discord shared a Twitter thread by user at Sahil Bloom. And the thread gives this Dunning-Kruger effect 101 and then makes some suggestions for how you can apply learnings from this effect in your own life. Okay, so that's what the thread is. The way David introduced it in the Discord was with this comment. The Dunning-Kruger effect explains so much of corporate America and validates a shitty cycle of incompetence. Maybe I'm just jaded. And actually that comment was got, what got me to click the link. Like without that, if he had just shared the link, I would probably not have looked into the Twitter thread, to be honest. For the record, based on the current time spent in Discord, I click everything. Okay. Well, now I click we're just, everything, guys. Now we are just trying to show off. I'm going to be honest. I don't click everything. I also don't even read everything that people write. I'm just going to be straight up about that. Eugene gets into long conversations about subjects, which I cannot honestly say I'm interested in. We've established that I'm the cereal finisher. Yeah, you are. Not breakfast cereal. Cereal as in... Oh my God. What? Yes. Cereal, not as in Fruit of the Loops. Fruit of Loops? Fruit of Loops. I just combined Fruit of the Loom and Fruit of Loops. All right. Sorry. Dunning-Kruger. I'm going back to it. So I clicked through the thread and I thought, hey, that's cool. Uh, genuinely, that was my only thought. And I then, think you need to explain what the effect is. Oh, did I not yet? Well, you okay, danced okay, okay. around it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. 
The Dunning-Kruger effect was a study and a paper published in 1999 by David Dunning and Justin Kruger. And they set out to see if people who are the least skilled in a particular area are also the most confident in their ability in, they, in that skill. And they found their observation was that people who are terrible at a particular task think they are much better than they are, while people who are very good at that task tend to underestimate their competence. So I do have an example here for people. Let's say Eugene and I are going to both take a test on English grammar and Eugene is bad at it and I'm good at it. That's more accurate. It's a more accurate representation. Okay, let's go with that. <laughs> yes. The Dunning-Kruger effect says that I would then underestimate how I would do, okay, because I'm good at it and you would overestimate how you would do. So let's say before the test, we're asked to estimate our performance. I would guess I'm going to get a 70 and you would guess you're going to get a 60. But then in reality, after we take the test, you get a 15 and I get a 90. 15? I'm just trying right. to like... I'm bad. I'm not that bad. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. For, That's for orders, the... orders of magnitude lower. That's failing. I... <laughs> I failed the grammar test. I mean, that's why I began this with me being bad, okay? Well, I didn't know you were going to go there. Well, because I have to, because that's what the effect is. The effect is a dramatic overconfidence. 15. So I can't, I can't say that you get a 45, because that's not a dramatic overestimation, okay? All right. It's that if, you are, if you are really bad, this is what the effect is, is that if you're really bad, you vastly overestimate your ability. Okay? okay, there's this like huge discrepancy. Yes, got it. All right, so when David first shared this- 15 though, <laughs> 15. Man, really hung up on this. <laughs> All right. I mean, at this rate, now next episode, we have to take an English grammar test and see how we do. I'm pretty sure I would do badly, you, actually. You would do well, I think. I don't know, it's been a while. There's some fine points to English grammar that are hairy. I read the original thread, really did not think significantly more about it other than, oh, that's cool, that's interesting. And then today, while I was looking for a subject and not being particularly interested in what you picked out for me, apologies, I came across this newsletter called The Browser. And in their most recent newsletter, they had recommended this article from the McGill Office for Science and Society titled, The Dunning-Kruger Effect is Probably Not Real. It was authored by Jonathan Jerry. And because of this whole Discord conversation that happened, that's the article that I was drawn to, right? So Jerry starts off his article by saying he wants the Dunning-Kruger effect to be real and talks about how so many journalists and people online and general popular media like to quote it in all sorts of situations. And then he goes on to describe how he double-checked the academic findings, looked into the criticisms of the original study, and then spoke with other statistics and psychology experts to see if the original study holds up. Okay, so I'm going to fast forward. There's a mm -hmm. lot of technical stuff in this article that is math-based, which is honestly, oh, interesting. honestly not my strength. Okay, so I, read, I did read the article twice. I don't feel like I'm going to really accurately explain. Essentially, he says people, different experts after 1999 
went to see if they could reproduce the Dunning-Kruger effect in their own studies. And they found that the original effect that was observed may be due to relatively high attenuation from measurement error in one explanatory variable confidence versus the other actual test score. So I just said a string of words I cannot say that I fully understand. Basically, they did the test wrong and the the data captured was incorrect. That's not... I can't say with confidence that's, that's not what Jerry is writing and what the experts say. What they're saying is that the display of the numbers is, I feel like false is the wrong way to put it. I wouldn't say false. Like the display of the numbers was exaggerated to appear as though the effect is real. And he, this, this sentence made sense to me. They used random computer generated data and they could still reproduce the effect. Mm -hmm. completely separate from human beings. Like they just use random numbers. And so it's more about how the graph displays those numbers and the, the way the chart looks versus what is actually happening. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't really want to go further into it because I know that I have hit up against my limitations in terms of explaining the math of this. But it's also not my main subject like my main interest is not to say the dunning-kruger effect isn't real the thing that i find so interesting is why people want it to be real mm. like jerry like david k like that twitter thread by sahil bloom like journalists in the new york times and the new yorker and all these other outlets that continue to quote it and i think it says something about us irregardless of the science that we want so much to believe that dumb people behave in dumb ways because of something scientifically proven. It is more frustrating if dumb people are not behaving according to some like human proven thing. Yeah. Does that make sense? In some ways, having this is a fast track way to understand behavior, right? Yeah. That's kind of, that's in essence why we gravitate towards things that hopefully are scientifically proven because they're with relative certainty a framework that we can rely on. Yeah. So Yeah, and I think it's interesting in particular actually over the last couple of years because we as a generalization, we observe people doing things that we think are really dumb. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to explain that logically. And I also think for some people from a position of being informed, being educated, their lack of perceived success, and I say that based off where they think they should be, comes down to something like this, mm. right? And I think it's almost like a defense mechanism. I mean, I've, I've, I've said this before, right? I've, I'm, I speak very openly like, oh, I'm... Not good at this, not good at that, which is why I'm actually no, that's not the example. Hold on. I, I've spoken at length about this on the basis that sometimes if you're qualified for a job but you don't get the job, there has to be another reason, right? Mm. There has to be another reason why. And I think this is a a way to soften the blow. Well, that's an interesting example because let's say I'm actually very competent in 
I'm trying to think of a job. Let's say I'm, oh, let's just keep using English grammar. Let's say I'm actually very competent in English grammar. I'm trying to get a job as an English grammar teacher and I don't get the job. That doesn't prove the Dunning-Kruger effect because the Dunning-Kruger effect would mean that I had underestimated my ability. So me not getting the job doesn't work because like even in my underestimation, I still applied for the job, but then I didn't get it. Yeah. No, I, I think what I'm trying to get at is the way we use this as a mechanism in our daily lives is that there's the belief that the whole structure, like the corporate structure especially, mm. is set up in a way where competence isn't actually the precursor to success. Right. Got you. Got you. Got you. Got you. Yeah. Which, and it, it actually, the reason why that we like to lay this out is because it exposes that success and climbing the corporate hierarchy actually comes down to things beyond doing a competent job. Yeah. And if you're not on the right side of the the culture to rise up the ranks, then you don't succeed, which yeah. is why it's actually, if anything, it's a, a blow in two ways. Number one, the best people aren't considered for the job or aren't able to actually rise up the ranks. And there's things happening behind the scenes or in a, on a very subtle, casual level that prevents that prevents the best people who can make the best decisions from actually making a difference. Yeah. I mean, I think this I think this is such an interesting subject because we could actually say that that is still true about the corporate landscape but not attribute it to the Dunning-Kruger effect. You can still say, you know, anecdotally, I look at the corporate landscape and this is what's happening. That good people are not getting promoted, people that are not as competent are rising the ranks, but we just don't have the comfort of being able to say this is a scientifically proven theory about human behavior. Mm. Which might make us feel better, like you said, if we could say that. You know, mm. otherwise we just have to starkly face the fact, you know, this is the way corporate landscape is set up or whatever you want to replace corporate landscape with. What Jerry does say, even when he says, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect is playing with numbers to exaggerate the effect, is that we are actually all bad at objectively judging our competencies. It's not, it's just that neither of us, none of us are particularly bad at it. Does that make sense? So the person who is e really bad at English grammar is not less able to judge their competency because they're bad at it. We're all equally not good. Mm. And this is actually why I was going to bring up the podcasting voice thing. Yeah. Because a lot of people even before you told me this at the top of this episode, say that about my voice. But I don't hold myself at the same estimate that they do. So my question is, is there even an objective way to measure your own competency in something? I mean, that's what testing is, right? But I think that your argument there actually is a little bit more difficult. Because it's an innate thing. Like there's there's no actual skill in your voice because it's a genetic thing. It's like you were born with the voice. Sure. Maybe right? the voice is a bad example. Let's say, but let's still use a creative skill. Because I think something like English grammar is more black and white. Mm -hmm. So like, let's say photography. You estimate yourself to be not 
that great. You average. Yeah. But actually everyone else around you says, no, you're amazing. You're brilliant. Is there someone who's right in this situation? It's interesting because this also relates back to one of the topics that were potentially up for deliberation. The Reddit thread. There was a Reddit thread that I put forth that was really was discussing the creative merit of work put out there. And if it really matters, if it's objectively good and what is objectively good, or does it really just come down to the person who's viewing it? What was the conclusion of the Reddit thread? I mean, it was just a bunch of back and forth. There was only like a change my view type subreddit. Mm. Yeah. But I, I, we've discussed why there are objective frameworks. I think there's an objective framework, but arriving at, a conclusion is really dependent on the lens in which we're viewing something. So for example, Eugene might be a great photographer because he works really fast, right? But then he's not a great photographer for listening to a client. In the grand scheme of things, creative work is so hard is so hard to judge because there is no sort of defined measuring stick. But if I if you and I are going to go and get on a track and run 100 meters, that's very easy to judge. Yeah. Which is simultaneously the beauty and the curse of creative work is that really actually if you're if you want to be successful, it comes down to making sure that the people that value your work is who you're presenting to. Mm. So if Instagram in an era was really about these travel photos, you know, half a stop overexposed, super low contrast photos then and you fit in that then you'd be considered a good photographer mm-hmm. but if it was you needing to capture the essence of a moment on the streets of new york or a big city then it would not be relevant yeah i just thought this was so interesting because yeah. the even the basic premise of this study is that people are capable of judging their competency at all like yeah. that that's the core question that someone is asked at the start of the study, yeah. right? Like estimate how good you are at something. And I think exactly what you've said about the creative world, when you do creative work, it's hard to have a personal grasp of how good or bad you are at something. Yeah, Cuz there's no measuring stick. It's like the measuring stick is is such a huge thing. Right, because even when it comes to a photo, taking a photo, like you might like a photo two stops overexposed for whatever reason. I might think it looks better and it achieves a better goal if it's half a stop underexposed. Yeah, like no one is really able to kind of be the the definitive answer. Something else I wanted to talk about was in the kind of popular discourse around the Dunning Kruger effect over the years, authors tend to like to dunk on the dumb people. In general, like they like to say, oh, dumb people are even more dumb because they overestimate how good they are at something. But in the reality of our society, I have the question, I guess, that I'd like to put to you, which is perhaps people get further because of their overestimation. Their overestimation equates to confidence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So there might be a lot of people who dunk on people like that, who have a low competency, but high confidence. 
But I actually think maybe there is something aspirational in that. There's this like meme. you aspire to have that quality on a range. I of- think it, I think it would do me good to have more confidence. Yeah. Even in things that I'm not as good at. I'm not I'm not trying to go for like a huge discrepancy. Like I don't want to I don't want to look like an idiot, right? I'm not going to say to someone, "Um, I'm super good at maths. I can help you study for your math test." And then, you know, fail at it. But I just think that a little bit of overconfidence is probably better than a little bit of underconfidence. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then lastly, I think this whole like debate i can see you looking at the author's twitter there was more discourse on his twitter as well like a bunch of people going in and saying no i think you're wrong because abc because anecdotally i've experienced this there was both there were people who said anecdotally this is my experience and there were people who said your math is wrong because this okay but like people going in the comments and being like your article is wrong and then also people in the comments going oh actually i think you're right because of anecdote or because of data um and i just wanted to ask what happens when we take a study and then distort and perpetuate those effects like i know you like to share some of these types of things too yeah i I think what you're so you're asking me if there is conclusive science assuming this article is conclusive or at least dismisses what was originally considered to be truthful yeah i mean you're just digging yourself a bigger hole right like i i we if we need to move forward or want to move forward we have to be sufficiently elastic to adopt new points of view Mm. and this doesn't help if you're going to continue digging holes for yourself because you want to double down on something that was researched before and you you want to believe it and i mean that's this is interesting because it's a somewhat non-polarizing topic because it's not about politics, race, gender, et cetera. Like it's really about a concept or like um, a discovery, if you would. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's also very on an individual level because right? I think at the core, it's about an estimation of your skill and confidence, like we said. But I get my additional question around you know what happens when we perpetuate theories is what happens when something enters the kind of popular perception yeah you know like in 1999 when these scientists first did the study it was just like you know in a journal kind of thing but then some things really catch hold of the imagination like for example have you heard of the false memory theory yeah yeah. Where you can basically generate a false memory. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So that became super popular in just like the general public's opinion of memories. And I'm, I'm, I guess this is kind of a question, but my opinion is that I think it's really dangerous. Yeah. Well, misinformation across the board is dangerous. I guess, I guess to close things off, what I'm curious, because this has taken a bit of a tangent, but do you think there's a way to condition yourself to not double down and immediately be defensive when your beliefs are attacked. Cause this is something that applies to this original dismissal of the concept. Right? Yeah. 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 No, I'm just trying to think about whether I have a recommendation 
Side note, do you ever ask questions where you yourself have an answer already? Yeah, I kind of just did that. You just right always before do, you right? Did. Yeah. Anyways. How do you keep people, how do you keep yourself from doubling down on something? Uh, weirdly, this kind of goes back to the confidence thing, which is to have, to hold less confidence. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because you have to be willing to be wrong. You have to perpetually be willing to be wrong. But I had just said earlier, like five minutes ago, that I think a little bit of overconfidence is a good thing. So how do you balance that? You have to balance a willingness to be wrong when presented with something else different from what you think, but also a good amount of confidence to get places in life because that's how society operates is those with a little bit more confidence push their way forward. What's your answer? There has to be a context as to the value of having an elastic mind. I mean, that's the way I've looked at it. I've looked at, like in the past, I've held beliefs I thought were essentially true, right? Even about my, well, predominantly about myself. Like I was like, I'm always going to do this. And I realized, oh, actually, if I only look at it this way, then I lose out on that. And I'm not sure how this may impact misinformation or or changing belief systems in different parts of life. But that's how I've been able to make it work for me. Okay, but tangentially. Another tangent. Another tangent. Did you read the most recent Dense Discovery? I want to say that I skimmed it because I read them all. But Yes, yes. It, I, I can't believe I even asked you if you read it. Dense Discovery is a newsletter written by Kai Brack, which Eugene and I both read. Him always, me infrequently. And in his most recent introduction, he said that, I quote, the benefit of accumulating life experience is that it gives your identity sharper contours. I'm more confident in my abilities and more accepting of my inabilities. But then he goes on the flip side of the coin and he says, this solidifying identity that comes with age can also become a trap, though. How many old people do you know whose opinions seem rigid, whose curiosity seems to have faded? But but there's both. You know, he's he starts off by saying there's comfort in knowing who you are with more certainty i mean at the end of the day you can't really just pick one or the other because they end up regressing to the middle or near the middle like i think yes you have people on the extremes but at the same time the majority of people will find some sort of middle ground essentially but it goes back to that whole belief like your strategy and your your perspective it differs based off of your timeline and where you are in life like let's say a teenager, like I should be soaking up as many experiences as possible. Mm. And actually, if there's one thing that adopting something to the extreme does allow you to do is immediately figure out or figure out more quickly, is this the right thing for me? Mm. And that, I think, I mean, I to a degree, that's kind of my personality, right? Like I'll go deep into something and then I realize, oh, maybe I don't like it as much. Or I've learned, like we've talked about this before, I learned all that I need to learn for now. I'm not an expert, but I'm okay not being an expert. And I move on to the next thing. Yeah, that's it from me. If you guys are interested in all of the math stuff that I did not talk about, you can click the link in the podcast. Let's move on. All right, tell me what you got for us this week. David K. really just putting his mark on these two topics this week. This, this is the David K. episode. <laughs> yes. Shout out to David K. Uh, the subject this week is why editorial brands will dominate retail long tail. 
and not long tail in the form of web search long tail, which is sort of everything outside of the most popular searches. Like yeah. long tail traditionally has been at the extremities, but the extremities are so big that if you add those all up, they're equivalent or larger than the most popular things. Okay. Yeah. Sure. This article was inspired by a piece in the business of fashion. It was an editorial written by Doug Stevens, and it starts off by highlighting the path and journey of Houdinki and Ben Clymer, the founder. Uh, I'm not going to get too much into it because I don't think it has that much bearing on the sort of macro concept of how we see publishers and editorial platforms going into e-com. Is Houdinki, for the sake of our listeners, at the beginning, a publisher or an e-com? I think it's a publisher first. Okay. Yeah. I think if you ask most people, it's like it's a publisher first. Okay. I mean, just for reference for yeah, people it's who a, don't immediately know. For people not familiar, it's considered by many to be kind of the poster child of this movement of intersection that has editorial and content on one side and product sales on the other side. Yep. Yeah. So there's one paragraph that I think is, is pretty important by the author. We tend to mystify the notion of experience in retail, but at a molecular level, retail experiences are really nothing more than an amalgam of content. Physical, digital, emotional, cognitive, and sensory. When we visit a website, app, or physical store, everything we see, hear, feel, find, and do there, all that content, coalesces to form an experience. The degree to which customers recall the experience and, moreover, relay that experience to others is wholly dependent on the degree to which that content is thoughtfully created and skillfully produced. Ultimately, content is the only means through which your brand story can be conveyed. So clearly there is a ton of value that is put into the content because it basically is your ongoing relationship with the outside world. I just want to say that I have a pet peeve about the word content. Yeah, of course, everyone does. So like, for example, in this paragraph that you read, where I agree with conceptually what's being said. I hate the multi-purpose use of the word content because it's so non-specific. Like, are we talking about a 400-word essay? Are we talking about a carousel post on Instagram? It's all the same, though. Literally, content encompasses all of that, but I find that frustrating to have a actually specific conversation. Well, content is like the same as calling something food. You know what I mean? It's for consumption and often conveys entertainment, education, both. I think you're looking too much into it. I don't think I'm looking too much into it, but I do recognize that's probably not helpful for this discussion. I just felt like I had to say it. Just throwing <laughs> Friday it Charisse. in there. All right. All right. Uh, so keep going. I think a big reason why editorial platforms and publishers are actually well-suited to this retail game is because content is a cheaper way to acquire users and to generate sales because yeah. generally putting ads paying for ads that's expensive but if you yourself are able to get people onto your platform onto your magazine whatever it may be then ultimately you kind of hold the keys but don't you think this is a misperception of content quotation marks that content is cheaper than paying for advertising because making content also involves all of actual human labor hours. Yeah. You have to find writers, photographers, oh, you have to I, publish. I, that's you have to a great pay point. for a 
you know, distribution method tools. There's always that ongoing joke or the ongoing realization that content is in such great abundance that while we deem it to be important, we actually don't feel as comfortable paying for it as we would paying for paid advertisements. Yeah. So if I had $20,000, would you pay $20,000 on a team to create a piece of content or a series for you? Or would you spend $2,000 and then spend $18,000 in Facebook? The industry is just not very good at measuring the effects of content. So it's very hard to calculate or historically, it has been harder to calculate the cost of acquisition by putting that 20K into producing a piece of content versus putting that 20K into Facebook, which comes with all of these measuring tools that Facebook gives you to say, you know, it was effective in this way. I'm sorry if I'm derailing where you wanted this to go, by the way. And there's another passage. Those looking to unlock that opportunity will have to completely rethink their business structure and priorities. Content creation must become a specialized function within the business. Those with editorial and production skills must be hired steeped in the brand's culture and allowed to create without the exception, without the expectation that every click or footfall leads to a transaction. Content is not a marketing campaign or ad buy. Disagree. It's a daily (laughs) creative process of authoring, animating, expanding the brand story, and in doing so, cultivating a community of loyal and engaged fans. I mean, I feel like this is what you say to make yourself feel good about producing content. Bro, bro, it's just fucking advertising. Like this is a story you tell yourself. To yeah. feel good about being a content creator, as opposed to We're looking at it, marketers. I've said this before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, I re-listened recently to your conversation with Jasper Wong. Oh, nice for unexpected connections, which took place June of last year. And you say twice in that conversation that art is marketing. Yeah, that's all it is, really. Yeah. So f- I'm not I'm not denying that. I was just, just you, when I was re-listening to it, I thought it was interesting. It was like like within a 10-minute span talking about how art and creative yeah. work is marketing. Yeah. So this is actually something that I've found really fascinating because we ourselves at Macon currently don't subscribe to this. We don't sell you anything. Yeah. But we sell a I mean, Patreon yeah, that's membership. Not, that's not, yeah, exactly. We sell a Patreon yeah. membership, which is not the exchange of a physical good, which probably falls within the more traditional sort of e-commerce landscape. Like, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to deny yeah. we don't we don't sell product, but we're not not selling you something. Correct. But the majority of Macon and its operations are funded by. Adam Studios, which sells people's things, which is, I, I, I'm okay with it. Is it better honestly. that there's a remove? I mean, I asked that question. I'm like, better for who? I guess. So this actually allows us to enter some very interesting different lanes because the fact that we have such a one layer removed way of making, making work, making the ends meet at, through a different sorry let me say that again so this actually opens up quite a few interesting different side convos because i think by virtue of you having something removed from the primary source of revenue generation it allows you to really live and breathe a much more independent life and perspective now what challenges that potentially 
is well actually you know what's interesting is that maybe i need to take that back because this conversation was i mean this topic itself was a suggestion of a patreon supporter right yeah david being a supporter suggested this so then he has indirectly or directly influenced our editorial is that a bad thing i don't necessarily think so because it's not like people right now anyways are knocking on our door and be like hey why didn't you talk about this right it's still up but it could enter something like that because like, people yeah. people are under the pre- pretense that not i'm not saying david is i'm just saying in general some people are under the pretense that they're voting with their dollar and they should have this much say yeah i mean i don't think it's a bad thing i think it's just you know how i criticize that quote you read as being a nice story that content creators tell themselves it's just about what we tell ourselves at make it you know we do have a layer removed between as you said make in and what makes profits what keeps it going but at the same time i appreciate you know you being honest like making it up ever since we launched the patreon has been more influenced by that element and yeah. that we do get money that way you know yeah. so there there's definitely a relationship yeah i have no problem talking about because anyone who looks into the relationship will realize that actually it's there and it, why deny it right it's well, actually not, we're not denying we're it not trying sure. to i do think some people do yeah like this the passage we read was sort of in denial yeah yeah but yeah it's it's saying that you can do content as this is such a romantic sentence it's a daily creative process of authoring animating and expanding the brand story and in doing so cultivating a community of loyal and engaged fans that you then sell stuff to yeah exactly right your your cultivation is to sell them stuff yeah we just we just started saying the same same sentence yeah so put like a a flag down right here because there will be a point in time where we do sell stuff and i've i've this is like internally i've told the people i'm like it would be great if somehow macon could actually operate and generate sufficient revenue to pay its own bills. But why though? Because just earlier you had said that you like that layer of removal. Yes. And I think the reason why is because the growth, once it has its own financial sustainability and stability, allows it to do more things versus always waiting for a handout from somebody else. I'm not calling it a handout, but I'm going to call it a handout for this sake. Okay, so, a handout that comes from literally the same people. Exactly. But it's just that like there will always be a cap, mm. right? I'm not going to try to make more money to make to give you more money, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I could, but I don't think that that's the right way to think about things. Mm, interesting. So my goal, like that was my whole thing, is like if Macon could enter a place where it generates its own revenue, is break even and or is like starting to be able to invest more of its own money like imagine it had both imagine it was break even and adam studios continued to give it you know a boost right but I still yeah okay yeah that's how i'm looking at it and okay. i think that until i recognize that actually the product has gone to shit and i don't even believe in it anymore then i'm okay to test those waters i just still want to push on you know why can't adam studios continue to give making more money from a conceptual POV because Macon gives back to Adam, just not in a measurable way in the same like dollar amount way that Adam gives to Macon. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. But the way I would look at it is let's say that hypothetically 
there's always going to be like, I, let's say like I set a budget for next year. I'm like, hey, we will give X percentage, right? And that percentage cannot deviate because if I give more money here, then let's say my staff or whatever yeah. get less. So, but if you look at it from the making perspective, it's uncapped. If it generates more revenue, more revenue goes back. Because even even then, like right now, Macon has no need to actually be a, a massively profit generating publication. Yep. It just needs to exist. Yep. So by doing that, like actually, if if for whatever reason, Macon tomorrow is able to generate a million dollars in profit, like a million dollars goes back into Macon. Yeah. For the most part, or like people start getting paid. Like there's a lot of people that do pro bono work. Yeah. Right. How do you actually return that to them? Yeah. So that's why for me, I'm I'm wanting that to be sort of a goal for us. It doesn't need to happen, and that's another thing too, because we're on our own timeline. It 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 is kind of chilling, right? Like making this kind of chilling, it's doing its own thing. It doesn't need to ha- have this happen tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this last week about money being a powerful motivator, and I think you're kind of getting into that too about if making can on its own generate you know this unlimited amount of money for itself it is a really strong motivation for making yeah. as a goal versus relying on you know a defined percentage but unknown actual like dollar amount from yeah. someone else the amount of growth for making based off of its own revenue generation can be virtually limitless in- infinite right yeah. From a conceptual standpoint. But it's just a matter of like, actually it needs to build up for itself. Is there more that you wanted to say about editorial and e-commerce and that relationship in general? I know we've been talking a little bit about making an Adam Studios as our personal example. I think that this overall th- thing using Hodinkee as a flagship example is... Great. I think Hodinkee actually for sure is the poster child of this movement. Mm. But where I think it falls short is that not every publication has the ability to sell such a expensive high margin item. Can you tell people what Hodinkee sells? So for example, they'll, they might do a collaboration with Hermes or Grand Seiko or IWC. It could be a $5,000 watch. So to give you more concrete financial terms and their ability to sell stuff, back in 2017, they had an exclusive $45,000 Vacheron Constantine watch that they sold out in half an hour. And with those 36 pieces they sold, they raised basically $1.6 million. Now, reverse engineer that, right? Let's talk, let's talk t-shirts. $1.6 million. Let's say $50 t-shirt, right? Yeah, $50 t-shirt. To generate equivalent sales, I need to sell 32,000 t-shirts, <laughs> right? Like as a publisher, that's, that's, yeah, that's very difficult. And also because you only have 36 pieces to sell that experience of logistics, which cripples a lot of people on the back. Well, it is the back end, but cripples a lot of e-commerce platforms and just retailers in general. Right. That's actually the, probably the most important part is your logistics. So you're saying we should sell luxury watches. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, I mean, even, even I look at it from my perspective with, with making, like just doing the math, right? Like, let's say you do have a t-shirt. Even if I want to make. Even if 32,000 people wanted t-shirts. Yeah. Think about the logistical nightmare. I, I'm, I'm running it through in my head right now. It's not great. Yeah. It's and not then, a great And then on scenario. top of that, 
you have to also think about like if let's pick something more reasonable, right? Like a profit target of or a revenue target of let's say um let's say hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Right. I was gonna say quarter of a million, but okay. Yeah, hundred and twenty thousand dollars, right? And that itself, like as a margin, at least fifty percent. So so let's say that's t shirts. You're still selling twelve hundred t shirts, which I think is quite a bit. Yeah. Over the course of a year. So like yeah, that's only to make sixty grand. And that's not including various other costs. So now you kind of understand, like, actually, it's not that easy. But you mean the when you say it's not that easy, you're referring to the editorial e-commerce relationship being successful in the same way that Hodinkee is. Yeah. And yeah, I also think there's different ways of doing it. I think the Hodinkee model is the pinnacle because you're able to work on small batch product that has a really strong story. Yeah. Versus I'm the publisher. I'm going to basically just wholesale stock all of the brands items from this season yeah it's so true i mean also what you're saying about really strong story i'm not trying to say t-shirts can't have strong stories but when you have to sell so many more in different versions i think it becomes less interesting in the in a way that watches even though i'm not big into them i understand how those stories can be more multifaceted so i guess in short the one thing that is nice about the ability to generate revenue through just non-physical goods is that the marginal cost is very low. So if I go from 10 <sighs> Patreon subscribers to 100 to 1,000, technically my content doesn't need to scale up. I mean, this podcast is a really great example. We make the same podcast every week and we could have 10 listeners or 100 or 10,000 and it would be the same podcast. Yep. So the ideal is obviously, could we get 10,000 plus 100,000? That's all I have. I mean, this was something that I've thought about a lot because I do think it's still easier to sell a $50 t-shirt than an $8 digital subscription. Yeah, we talked about that a lot, but I think that's changing. I mean, I don't. I don't know how fast we're getting there, but I have strong belief that society is moving towards non-tangible goods yeah should we cap things off good place to wrap things up if you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture you can visit us at macon.com you can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms if you like this podcast you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash macon also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.